You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Humanize Me. I'm Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And I am genuinely, like when I say welcome, I mean welcome. Because I like virtually everybody I know that listens to this podcast. Everybody who sends me a note, or sometimes I'll bump into somebody and they'll say, hey, I listened to that podcast about this or that or the other. And gosh, you know, or I go to that Facebook page, uh, the Humanize Me Facebook page, um, and I think, what a nice group of people. What a positive group of people. What a constructive group of people. I mean, even when somebody comes on that website and does something inappropriate, you know, or on that Facebook page and does something inappropriate, it feels like the other people are like, eh, that's not really where we're going here. But you know what? We're still glad to have you. Just hang in there. Keep, stay with us. And uh, I just appreciate y'all. I appreciate the emails that I'm getting that are sort of saying thanks or this makes me feel less, less alone. Um, a number of people are reaching out sort of saying, hey, could you coach me through this? Or I'm looking for s- sort of a specific kind of counseling that you do. And that's fun. But what's, what's real, like, I, I mean, I love interacting with people that way. And, and so if you want to know about that, it's all at bartcampola.org. But the truth of the matter is it's just, it's just a joy to get these notes from people saying, hey, just the podcast itself makes me feel less alone or makes me feel more connected or gives me ideas for making stuff happen in my own world. I mean, honestly, the kind of community, the kind of connection that we're talking about, it's not rocket science. It's, 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 it's just about intentionality. And, and so it's fun to be, to be in the center. It's fun to kind of be in, right, right around all this, po- all this energy and all these people that are in, enthusiastic about, about loving other people um, for the fun of it. For the joy of it. So anyway, like probably the podcasts are going to come fast and furious right now. Um, I, I, I have felt guilty releasing a podcast immediately after another podcast because I don't want people to think like that I don't want them to listen to the first one. But I'm starting to realize that there are people that find this podcast and then they go back and sort of work their way through the old ones. And so I'm just going to trust that it makes sense to do this stuff. So today I've got a conversation that I'm... It was just so off the beaten trail for me. I, I talked to a, a, an old friend. I mean, not that old a friend, but for a few years, I've known Dr. Gleb Tuspersky. And I always, I, I hope I pronounce his name right. I only ever call him Gleb. And uh, Gleb is, he's, he's a behavioral scientist. But like, what's interesting is if you go to his website, he goes, my primary, my primary vocation is as a disaster avoidance expert. And boy, could we all use one of those in our life? I, you know, I can think of so many times in my life where I, my first thought after a problem is, boy, I just wish I had had a disaster avoidance expert. It would have really helped. Um, so, I mean, Gleb really does. He works with businesses and individuals to kind of, you know, apply science-based strategies to, to everyday reality. But that's not why I talk to him. I mean, I've, I've had those conversations with him, but this time he had sent me a letter a few weeks ago asking me to sign on to something called the Pro-Truth Pledge. And I did sign on and I read it, but then I thought like, 
this guy is he's reacting to the political climate today and the public discourse today in a really helpful way. And I know a lot of people that are like, can you believe it? Did you see that last tweet? Ah, this all, what's that? We're in the post-truth era and everyone's upset, but nobody knows what to do. And Gleb is a good thinker on this stuff. So I had this conversation with him and I'm not, I'm not gonna, not gonna preamble it too much. I'm just gonna say like, you'll know if you dig this conversation about 15 minutes in, 10, 15 minutes in. And if you don't, if this isn't your cup of tea, it's okay. It's okay. But I think it's important for us to recognize that all the conversations that we are interested in having and all the good stuff that we want to do in the world or you know, stuff about poverty, stuff about um, sexual equality or gender equality, stuff about sex trafficking, stuff about LGBTQ rights, uh, stuff about community building all you know stuff about for you know re- reducing the, the the threat of imminent nuclear war uh, climate change all that stuff those conversations all rely on a context in which we have enough truth to argue where we have it where we agree on the facts so that we can disagree on what they mean and like all the conversations we care about are in danger when truth becomes fungible and Gleb is really fighting to reclaim that common space and I loved talking to him about it so like I hope you dig this conversation this is me and Gleb talking about truth with a capital T I'll see you on the other side I get this email from you I like I don't want to say out of the blue, but like I don't get that many emails from you. But this feels like a, almost a personal email where you're saying like, "Hey Bart, I'm doing this thing with a bunch of other people, and I want you to join in." Like, what gets you started on? Like, what is this thing, and what got you on it? Sure. So the thing is the pro truth pledge, and what got me on it is just seeing the lies and deceptions in our political discourse. You know, folks here in the U.S. have seen the presidential election cycle in 2016 was one that was full of lies and deceptions. If you look at fact checkers and you look at uh, when they started doing fact checking, you know, ages ago, it's the most lie-filled, deception-filled election cycle ever. And I mean, let's be both be honest, Trump has been the one that has been spouting both the most lies and the intense lies, most intense lies. So if you look at the Washington Post fact checker, uh, they say that by comparison to a typical candidate, Trump lies about four times as often, and including by comparison to Hillary Clinton. So this is was pretty rough for me to see that and especially see him win. So again, it's not Trump as a political candidate, it's not his values, it's the methods that I'm really concerned about. And the methods have led to really a destruction of trust and honesty in our political system. And we saw a lot of similar methods for UK listeners being adopted in the Brexit campaign by the Leave side of the Brexit campaign, lies and deception. So it's not only a US thing, it's more of a global thing. And it's 
going on right now in Turkey as well and other countries. We can talk about that. So that's what got me on it. And my expertise in behavioral science, you know, the previous thing that you and I talked about was my book, Find Your Purpose Using Science. You know, it's nice and warm and uh, filled with love, you know, trying to find meaning and purpose. But this, I thought, was going to be more important in terms of fixing what's wrong with our society. So I got together with a bunch of other behavioral scientists okay, and tried to address the lies and deceptions in our society. So, so did you actually gather together these behavioral scientists and say, like, what are we going to do about all this lying? Yes, and not so many words, but said, hey, uh, I think we should use behavioral science methods to address this lying. Let's work together and create something that would help address these lies. And that's how the Pro-Truth Pledge Project came about. So it was behavioral scientists, concerned citizens, also people with expertise in marketing, people with expertise in technology. So trying to combine the best methods that we have from marketing, from behavioral science, and from technology you know, in terms of crowdsourcing. Now, to now, now I, know, I know that people are not solely motivated by utility. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I learned, I just read the undoing, you know, the, the, the book about Kaversky and, uh, and, and uh, Danny Kahneman and, and, and Amos Tversky. So like, you know, about like these guys who figured out like, look, we're not rational actors economically. Sure. Okay. So I know that, but mm -hmm. utility does play into it mm -hmm. and lying works. I mean, like Trump sure. was a nothing candidate. Like he had no chance of winning and he lied Absolutely. his way into winning it. And, and yep. Brexit, like they, those guys were telling lie after lie about what would really happen and they mm -hmm. won. So like, yep. so like you're going to go like, really guys, don't lie <laughs> because it's what morally wrong. And they're like, we're, we're like this stuff works like and as a matter sure. of fact if we don't lie the other guys will lie and they'll beat us so what i find is what's what's more con what's concerning to me is not just when the people on the wrong side of an issue lie but when the people on the right side of the issue lie and go like we've got to lie to keep up with those guys sure and good examples are campaign finance reform so campaign finance reform is where even people who say oh, we need to reform our campaign finances, still use dark money of various sorts in order to get into power. But you know what? This is the broader issue here is what's called a tragedy of the commons. And so let's get in a little bit into the behavioral psychology of this. So tragedy of the commons is any situation where a group of people share a common resource. Now, in that sort of situation, it's to an, any individual's benefit to take advantage of this common resource. So whether it's trust and honesty in our political system, or whether it's clean air and water, or whether it's you know not getting funded by dark money and having that you know that's another issue of trust and you know not letting interest groups win. So so wait wait, wait let me slow down because not everybody knows what that means tragedy of the commons. Sure. But the idea is is that when we share a common resource, we set a rule and say like it would be better for all of us if none of us abuse this resource. But, but in right. any given situation like that, if I'm the only one that abuses the resource, I get a great advantage. But if yes. everybody abuses the resource, the resource itself gets destroyed. So a really great example of where tragedy of the commons is being successfully solved 
is pollution, pollution of the environment. So actual physical pollution. You know, in the early 1960s, a group of people got together who were really concerned about this issue and said, hey, we're really screwing up the environment here. We're polluting our air. We're polluting our water. It's really bad. But individual polluters, they have a big incentive to pollute. You know, they get a small hit to their personal health. I mean, not even to their personal health if they don't live in the area where they pollute, but they get so much financial reward for polluting. So how do we solve this tragedy of the commons, they asked. And so they began the environmental movement. And the big book that started it was Silent Spring by Richard, by uh, Carson. Rachel, Rachel Carson. Carson. Yes, by Rachel Carson. And in 1962, and by 1970, the EPA was created. So this was, in historical time, less than a decade from the really start of the environmental movement to when it became mainstream and had a big impact on government. And what they did was, we examined what they did, we behavioral scientists examined what they did, and what they did was a number of strategies. They focused first on raising awareness of this as a problem. So they said, hey, people, ordinary people, the masses, you want clean air, right? You want clean water, right? Well, these polluters are screwing you over. They are really destroying your air and water. It's a big problem. So you might want to think about it and try to do something about it to not get screwed over. So that's kind of one uh, area that they worked on. And the other area was that they told them first raise awareness, and then they said, hey, so here are clear things you can do. You can do things yourself. You can start doing recycling, composting, and stuff like this. You can change things by yourself. And you can pressure your legislators to pass pro-environmental legislation. You can get them to go green. And you know what? From that 1962 book that was published, and a little bit earlier when the environmental movement started off, to 1970, they got really a lot of push. They got the Clean Air Act passed. They got the Clean Water Act passed. They got the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency started, and a whole bunch of other wildlife protection and other protection legislation passed, all because they used effective strategies to address the strategy of the commons. And we are are borrowing the lessons that they successfully showed were applicable and applying them to the pollution of truth in politics. Okay, so then you send me this letter, the pro-truth pledge. I feel like you skipped a step. Because, in, like, instead of just raising the awareness, like, this lying is, or, or did you just assume everybody already knows the lying is a huge problem? I assume that you know that lying is a huge problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So the Pro-Truth Pledge is a specific instrument that we decided to create to address this tragedy of the commons. But is that a, is that a raising awareness strategy, or is that... Yes. Okay. It's a, it's a raising awareness strategy. It's... For the first step is to tell people, so for you, it's not a raising awareness strategy. It's more like, here's the thing you can do strategy because you're already aware. For more for other people who aren't yet aware, we would first tell them that, hey, here are the kind of problems that are happening in our political system because of lying and deception. You know, the lying in various forms of misleading statements and so on. And the two things that we talk about are corruption and authoritarianism. So here, let me clarify. So how does, what about corruption? So if a politician gets elected and just by lying, like you said, and Trump definitely used a lot of lies to get his way into office, that politician doesn't have to care about what his constituents think. 
and about the truth. He can just lie about whatever. Thus, he can stuff his pockets as much as he wants and lie about it. And we've had plenty of politicians who, you know, are tempted to do it, but they know that investigative journalists are watching them and are investigating them and so on. Now, if they don't have that problem of investigative journalists investigating them and trying to watch them and reporting on various issues of corruption, now even investigative journalists reporting on they can attack those journalists and say, oh, you know, the journalists are lying and so on then those politicians can just be as corrupt as they want. We really had a great example of this recently uh, with Governor Christie, Chris Christie, who closed down the beaches in New Jersey and then used a closed beach, which was totally empty, just for his own vacation, for himself and his family on July 3rd. And then he's, he was attacking the media when they reported on this. So he used... a. This is a clear example of corruption, of abuse of power, where and Governor Chris Christie, he didn't care about being attacked by the media because he knew he could just attack the media back and his supporters would still be supporting him, people who were critical of the media. So we already see politicians abusing it, using Trump's example to abuse their power and get resources for themselves. So corruption is one example. The other example is authoritarianism. We've seen a lot of countries that used, whose leaders used post-truth methods to get to power, use lying and deception to get to power, then go into authoritarianism. And this is countries like, in recent memory, Russia, uh, Turkey right now, then earlier Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, a lot of other countries, which you know I'm not going to go into. But basically, their leaders used post-truth methods to get into power and then use those methods to stay in power and retain their power through lying and deception. Because if they can lie and deceive their way into office, they can use those same strategies to keep power. So for example, how it might work in the United States. We know that uh, Trump's election, Trump lied extensively about the election. Before the election, in October 2016, he said that the election would be rigged. Once he won, he said that he actually won the popular vote, although he lost by 3 million votes. And he set up this election commission to supposedly investigate the mass voter fraud. And it's right now sending letters to all the state commissions, election commissions, asking them for voter data. We know that there wasn't any sort of massive voter fraud. From all the research done into this, we know there was. Now, Trump wants to make it appear that there was. And his base, of course, is going to buy it. Now, what happens in the 2020 election? I mean, this is all leading up to the 2020 election. What happens in 2020 election when, you know, uh, let's say Trump loses? And if Trump loses, what's the likelihood that he'll say he lost due to massive voter fraud and then try to retain power by saying there was massive voter fraud, he won't give up power? Now, that's a, not an unlikely scenario at all, given the evidence that we have right now. And he might try to keep power that way, and he might succeed. So that's how authoritarian leaders use lies and deceptions to get into power and hold power. So when you talk about corruption and authoritarianism, people who don't intuitively care about truth in politics begin to really care. And that's the same way that you raise awareness of clean air and water, of the benefits of clean air and water to each individual, and the harm that's done when you destroy clean air and water. So it's that's what be- it's interesting, though. You know, the thing about pollution is, you know, people, you, you know, Rachel Carson and whatnot could 
point out things and say like, do you notice the difference in your environment? Do you see this happening? Like look in your backyard. I think when it comes to this lying and corruption, particularly with authoritarianism, I remember Sinclair Lewis years ago wrote a book called It Can't Happen Here. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in the United States, there is this sense that people have had, and maybe for the liberal group of Americans that like there was all this thing like, this stuff, all this authoritarianism, like we have checks and balances. It can't happen here. I think this is the first moment when I thought, you know, it might happen here. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, 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 but I think that for the vast swath of Americans, they still sort of trust that our system is immune to being gamed. Mm. I'm not so sure I would agree with you. When we look at the biggest fear, so I'm going on behavioral science research here, for example, on behavioral science research on corruption. When you look on research on corruption, you see that this is the biggest fear of Americans, bigger than public speaking, bigger than terrorism. Corruption is a fear that about 60% of Americans share. And this is a huge number. Again, number one fear of Americans. So you go to corruption and you say, hey, what about corruption? Uh, that that's a, that triggers a lot of people's emotions, wow. especially okay. emotions of conservatives. How about the authoritarianism? So, Are they afraid of that too? Author- yes. I mean, you know, why do you think conservatives have guns and say, oh, the government's not going to take away my guns? The government is not going to do these things. Conservatives are really afraid of the government. So if you bring okay. up the issue of yeah. authoritarianism, that speaks to conservatives as well. So both corruption and authoritarianism speak to – they don't speak to liberals and uh, like you and I – Those aren't things that we worry about. But moderates and conservatives worry about these things a lot. Okay. So liberals are already concerned about truth in politics, and moderates and conservatives can be swayed that way. Their awareness can be raised by talking about corruption and authoritarianism. And if you, yeah, if you point out the example of, you know, what happens in your backyard? Hey, look at this thing with Governor Christie abusing his office that way, you know, uh, closing down the beach and then using it uh, for his own private vacation. That's something that a lot of conservatives and a lot of moderates would be concerned about. That's the, exactly their bugaboo, their scary thing that government officials are abusing power for their own ends. So, yeah, that's something that's scary for them. Yeah, yeah. I- Okay, and you know, I go like that makes sense to me. Um, Although it's strange to me because Trump, with the one of the things that's the most amazing to me about Trump, I mean, with all the things that are going on, but this notion that he won't release his tax returns, Mm -hmm. I would just think, or that he won't do a blind trust, or that you know that he won't renounce his you know his connections with his businesses. All of these things, I just go, I can't believe this isn't triggering people that worry about a politician just lining his own pockets off the government? I think those people are not so concerned about tax returns because they don't like taxes anyway. So if you think of conservatives and taxes, they are like, well, you know, he was able to get away with it. This would be something I would like to be able to get away with. I got you. So they are not so concerned with it. When you point out things like Governor Chris Christie, abusing his power to go and you know do things at the beach that's a clear example or uh, if you look at things like trump spending a lot of money to fly his private you know to mar-a-lago every weekend spending much more money than obama that's something that triggers people so when they see wastefulness 
So you need to speak the language of conservatives and moderates and see what appeals to them and then address those concerns. So this is where you and your scientist buddies are trying to figure out, like, what do people fear and how do we exploit that fear or, or take advantage of that fear to, to, to point them towards this large problem of lying and, and fear, obfuscation? Yeah. Fear, upsetness, anger, um, a bunch of emotions. A bunch of, so here the crucial thing is activating emotions. And we, we know that what activates people are things like fear and anger. Uh, sadness doesn't really activate people. It causes them to be kind of like depressed. Passive. And not yeah, to, they get passive. Yeah, passive. So things that uh, cause them anger, things that uh, cause them to be afraid. Anger is actually a better activating emotion than fear. So anger at Governor Chris Christie, if you bring that out clearly. Anger at wasteful spending, if you bring that out clearly. These things that cause anger are the most effective activating mechanism, activating tools. So, but when I looked at, so, so you sent me this letter and said, Bart, me and a bunch of my buddies have put together this, um, pro truth. Is that what you call it? Pro truth? Yeah. Yeah. Pro truth pledge. Pledge. And, and it's kind of, it's not saying like, you know, you can't lie to your kid about a birthday party that you're planning for him. It's, it's all about in the public discourse. Like when you're writing articles, will you agree to these standards? What's interesting is, is I go, okay, so let's say I sign that, which I did. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as you pointed out, like, this won't be a big problem for you. You're, like, you're not a habitual liar in the public discourse. Yeah. Although as a preacher, you know, th- that, th- that's the only place where I was like, ah. You know, because like when I tell stories, mm-hmm. I sometimes think like, like all preachers. I mean, even though I'm a secular preacher, I still take two stories – that are both that happened to me and they go like, mm-hmm. but it works better if I, you know, if I sort of make it seem like it happened on sure. the same day or, you know, yeah, like, yeah, I if I could, you know, I change the stories to make, and I'm, what I always say to myself is I don't want the facts to stand mm-hmm. in the way of the deeper truth, the capital T truth of the story, mm-hmm. but like it's fudging, you know, like we're yeah. fudgers, all, you know, our memories. So our, story t- storytelling involves fudging. This is why we have an exemption for uh, people who, where it doesn't impact public discourse, that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, if you talk, we have a specific thing about that says, you know, ministers, religious and secular, whatever, preachers can take the approach of pledge. It's not about their religious speech. It's not about that. It's not about when they're, it's, you know, when you're counseling a student as a counselor and, you know, when the student is having difficulty, you know, that's not a thing that you, right. And you say, I, I, I'm sure, I think it's going to be better. And you're like, well, you know, that wasn't true. It didn't get better. And you, okay. Okay. Like that's not what we're talking about. You're talking about verifiable facts. Mm-hmm. You're, talking, Absolutely. you're talking about numbers and like mm-hmm. actual experiences, like saying like, I did not park my car in that space. And you go like, actually we have a photograph of your car in that space. Um, right. And well, so, only to the extent that it's relevant to public discourse, you know, right. if it's somehow relevant, you know, it would be more like my car doesn't have, you know, bad emissions or something like that where it's relevant to climate. But yes, okay. stuff like that. So so let's just say I sign it. Yes. Which, which I did. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm not. And, and you say and then tell all your friends, tell all the people that listen to your podcast that you signed this pledge, which can be found where on the Internet, by the way. At protruthpledge.org. Okay. Protruthpledge.org. 
And so I tell everybody that and they go like, wow, my trusted voice, Bart Campolo, has mm-hmm. promised to be truthful. How do you feel like this, like how does this impact the public discourse? Like, like I don't think anybody's surprised. They're like, yeah, I always assumed Bart was telling the truth anyway. Yeah, so here's where we look at the difference between early adopters and the mainstream. We are starting with early adopters. People, so I sent you the letter, I said like, hey Bart, you're already doing this stuff pretty much. How about you sign this and add your voice to the commitment for truth and politics and public discourse? So that's great, and you signed up, and that's wonderful. Now, we need to first start by getting all the people who are already likely to sign the pledge because they're already acting in these ways to go ahead and sign it and support truth in public discourse. So that's why I sent you the letter. You know, I knew you were like that. Uh, I sent the letter to some other people who chose to sign the pledge, people like Dan Barker, people like Peter Singer, uh, August Bronsman, the SSA executive director. Some organizations chose to join this as a whole organization. For example, the United Coalition of Reason, the Atheist Alliance of America, and so on. Are you also sending it to like more mainstream religious leaders? Like, are you sending it to church people, pastors? Not yet. So we need to focus. We did. So what we're doing right now for active outreach, we are going to people who we think would already sign it first. So people who are in the notables, in the reason-oriented sphere, who already share a value of truth, reason, and science, and asking them to sign it. Now, that doesn't mean that incidentally people who are religious notables won't sign it. In fact, we have one Without any active outreach, there is an Episcopal bishop who already signed it, Pierre Whalen, if you want to look him up. So he already signed it. He heard about it. He signed it. But it wasn't because of direct outreach like I did for you. It was just because he he, he signed it. He saw it. He signed it because he thought it was a good idea and he wants to support this. But Gleb, Gleb, don't you worry that like sure. if 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 like the pastor of the Willow Creek church, like the big, a big mega church sees the list and they go like, wow, all the secular leaders have signed this, that they'll go mm-hmm. like, oh, this isn't for me. Like, like, don't you worry that like, if you define it as a secular project at the outset, then those people will be, they won't, they won't engage it the same way they would as if you got them in on the ground floor. No, because I'm not going to reach out to the leader of Willow Creek Church and tell them that, hey, look at all these secular leaders who signed it. Why don't you sign it? I'll reach out to the, or we will, not necessarily me, we'll reach out to the Willow Creek leader and say, hey, Pierre Whelan, an Episcopal bishop, signed it. How about you sign it? So this is part of the um, identity outreach. You go and you look at people in each group who are likely to already be on board with this pledge, and you say, hey, here are three people from your group who signed the pledge. How about you sign it? And then that's the way you get these people to sign it. So, for example, uh, you know, we're already doing some local level outreach to politicians. I'm based in Columbus, Ohio, so we have a group of volunteers here. So we got a number of politicians here to sign it. And after we do that, we can go to other politicians in this area and ask them to sign it. For example, there's... Um, district race for Congress district in Ohio, District 12. And we got two Democrats who are candidates for this seat to sign it and one Republican. And there's one Republican incumbent. 
So we have one Republican incumbent who is there and one Republican candidate who's running against them in the primary, and then two Democratic candidates who are running uh, two primary off against each other to face the Republican incumbent. And so at some point, if one guy doesn't sign it or one woman doesn't sign it, you say like, wow, what's wrong with you? Like everybody else is committed to this. You're like, what have you got to hide? Exactly. So we got both of the Democrats sign it and the Republican uh, candidate to sign it. Now we're going to the Republican incumbent and asking him to sign it. And if he doesn't, that's when we'll go to the media and say, hey, media, we have for this district, there are four candidates who are one incumbent and three candidates, Republican and Democrat. The Republican signed it, the two Democrats signed it, the incumbent didn't. Would you be interested in writing up a story about this topic? <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. You know, it's funny. I read this novel recently um, called The Circle. I think they they're, either they made it. Yeah, they made it into a movie. I didn't see the movie, but I read the novel. It's written by uh, Dave, somebody who wrote. Um, gosh, I can't even remember the stuff these guys write. Anyway, The Circle. It's it's this one about a social media company that is sort of like almost like Facebook in the near future. And they end up sort of getting people to agree to wear cameras on their bodies at all times so that everything that they do can be recorded. Mm -hmm. And in the end, once they get enough people wearing it, it becomes you become a social pariah if you don't wear it because it's sort of like, what have you got to hide? Like, and Mm -hmm. and it's actually portrayed as a very scary thing because it's an elimination of privacy. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I was so grateful that your pledge, it feels like says like, look, this, we're not, we, we, like, we almost recognize that like lying is inevitable and cool. sometimes, and sometimes crucial in personal relationships. Um, we're just saying that in, when it comes to public discourse, it's not a helpful thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, if my wife asks me if, you know, this new dress makes her look fat, you know, I am not necessarily going to tell her that it makes her look fat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that wouldn't be good for personal relationships or something like that. Have, uh, have so. you come across this book, uh, Love uh, and Lies, uh, an essay on no. truthfulness, deceit, and the growth of care in erotic love? It's written by this guy named Clancy Martin. And, and like the first step of it, is, the first section of it is sort of like, the morality of deception and how in certain circumstances, like the one you just described, deception is not only acceptable, but absolutely important. You know, Bonhoeffer once said, there come times in a man's life when he must not only lie, but he must lie with vigor and imagination. Um, and and, and, and i'm sure in a woman's life (laughs) yeah yeah well you know he wrote that in 30 in the sure 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 but 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 i think that you know so the idea is is like we, we we have to recognize that our human relationships I, I forget what the number was but they you know that that the average person lies 20 times in a day like unconsciously just mm-hmm. um it, it just it and it greases the skids of life and it's almost like that Jim Carrey movie liar liar that if you were scrupulously truthful <laughs> yes it would not be everything would be horrible and you would be a cruel person um yeah. And exactly. It, this is so. This is only about public discourse, yeah. where we actually want people to tell us the truth, and that is the focus of the pledge. It's only about public discourse. You know what you say in public discourse to avoid to avoid a situation where any political candidate can win by lying. You know we don't want that in politics. Now, in certain situations, 
in, let's say, I don't know, having to do with secret information of some sort that a president might have. It's fine for the president to avoid sharing that information. That's not what we're asking. But, you know, don't lie about it. Don't say that there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq when there are, aren't actually weapons of mass destruction in Iraq just because you want to go and, you know, invade Iraq. But don't just don't say anything. That's totally fine. We're not asking for full disclosure. It's just when you say stuff, don't lie. <laughs> okay, so now on, on the face of it, mm-hmm. to a person who's committed to goodness, you know, is committed to human flourishing, if you will, yes. and you sort of go tragedy of the commons, this lying thing is eroding something that like in order for us to have good government, we need to have trust in government. All this lying is eroding that trust. It's it's eliminating the possibility of sort of a, a good social contract. Therefore, it's in all of our best interest to pursue truth in public discourse. So you get to that place, and then somebody's listening to my podcast and go like, well, "Dude, I don't, I can't disagree with that. That sounds great to me." What do you want them to do? What do you want? What do you want? Like, sure. like, like a college kid them, listening yeah. to this podcast. I want what them do you want to me go to, to protruthpledge.org. So that's protruthpledge.org and sign the pledge. Now, this pledge, like you said, it has things that pretty much everyone can agree on are help people orient toward the truth. And this is something that's informed by behavioral science research on truth-oriented behaviors. So, for example, uh, fact-checking information out of 12 behaviors, fact-checking information to confirm it's true before accepting and sharing it, distinguish between my opinion and the facts, reevaluate if my information is challenged and retract it if I can't verify it. Ask people to retract information that reliable sources have disproved, even if those people are my allies, and celebrate those who retract incorrect statements and update their beliefs toward the truth. So there are seven more behaviors that are all like this. They are all recognizable behaviors that orient toward the truth. So if the person is comfortable committing to those behaviors, they would click on the orange button that says take the pledge. And for listeners who are following along with us, again, that's protruthpledge.org, so you can check that out. Click on the orange button that says take the pledge. Then you fill out your name, your email, those are obligatory. Then optional stuff is phone. We want to get people's phones to be able to send them action alerts and also contact them if they want to help with the pledge. And I'll get to that later. Then provide their address. That's really important for getting representatives, your elected representatives, to sign the pledge. Because one of the next things that says is, a checkbox that says, I call on all of my elected representatives to take the pro-truth pledge. So one of the ways that this pledge functions is as as a petition. We have volunteers for the pledge. And the more people who sign up in each district, let's say, you know, for everyone from your district judge to your state house representative, to your mayor, uh, to your senator, governor, congressional representative, all the way up to the president, everyone who are your elected representatives, We'll have volunteers for the pro-truth pledge. We plan to have volunteers for the pro-truth pledge. Go to each of them and say, hey, here are a thousand people in your district who signed this pledge and are asking you to take it. How about you take it? Have you targeted Have you targeted any particular districts to say, like, we're going to start here and concentrate here and yes. see if we can get so, all the politicians in Columbus, Ohio to do this? Or yes, so, where? Well, that's why I mentioned uh, Ohio District 12. That's the district where I live. And we, where we have a number of volunteers, so it's a natural district to target, where we have a number of supporters, 
And that's what we're doing first. And so, and so, and so if, if one of my listeners is in Los Angeles, they should go like, do I know anybody in Columbus? Because I do. I know some people in Columbus. And they, <laughs> they, should, they should probably drop an email to all their Columbus friends and say, look, everybody should do this, but you especially should do this because this is a place of a hotspot. Exactly. And we're starting up, we have a number of uh, places where we have more volunteers and what we were trying to do is establish a network of volunteers across the country who would be doing this for the local area, getting people to sign the pledge and then having these, the more, once they have a sufficient number of people who sign the pledge, going to their local candidates and saying, hey, how about you take the pledge? Or just simply emailing their local rep candidates and saying, hey, how about you take the pledge or tweeting to them or something like that. We have had a number of successes in that area where people were a, said to their congressional representatives, hey, or you know, local representatives, how about you take this pro-truth pledge? And they have taken the pro-truth pledge. So that already works. You know, but, Club, it's, it's funny, like I'm thinking about this. I'm just thinking about it like because, you know, I always am terrified of boring people. And <laughs> and when I think about I'm, I'm just thinking about like the. The, the kind of community building folks or the I'm trying to make sense of my life on the other side of faith folks who listen to me, um, listen to this podcast. And I sort of go like, you know, kind of like, you know, not all of them are politically minded, but it strikes me that in a weird way, a lot of them are, however, oddly enough, science minded, where they're sort of, they're excited about the idea that, oh, instead of getting my truth from, you know, some, you know, text, you know, medieval text revelation, um, <laughs> I get it from science. And in a weird way, science can't proceed unless people agree to be honest with each other about their results. Like everything's got to be verifiable. And, and when people don't, when people lie about their results, it slows down the whole process. And you sort of go like, science is a conversation and this conversation can only go forward if we agree to these ground rules. And in a weird way, I, not in a weird way, in a similar way, I think what you're saying is, is collective governance, like like the social contract, the you know social cooperation, can only really do well. Like we can only solve problems like homelessness or poverty or climate change. We can only solve them if we agree to have the conversation according to like where we all use the same facts and, and yes. you know, where you don't get to pick your facts. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and so in a sense, what you're saying is, is like, Hey, Hey, everybody, if we're going to live together, if we're going to have a community, if you will, like even on a small scale or even on a larger scale, if we're going to really promote human flourishing, we've got to agree to some rules of conversation. And the first Absolutely. of those is everybody's got to tell the truth about, stuff that you, the, the, about facts about physical things mm -hmm. about you know money uh, like like I, I, we can't discuss how what's the best welfare policy is if we can't be honest about how many people don't have health care and how many people will lose health care under this program like if we can't if we th th then we can't make any decision we can't even argue this is very accurate and one of the fundamental things that the pledge does is clarify what it means by being truth tellers. So, you know, when a doctor, uh, I had this experience where my wife went to a doctor and the doctor said, 
hey, you know what, uh, you've been gaining a little bit of weight, you need to go on a diet. And she was really upset. And she was like, and she came home and she was like, well, what does it mean to go on a diet? I have no idea what it means to go on a diet. What does it mean, you know, eat in a healthy way? So when the doctor doesn't give you directions on what it means to go eat healthy, it doesn't really help. In the same way, when somebody says, tell the truth, but doesn't give you directions on what truth telling means, it doesn't help that much. And the pledge really clarifies what it means to tell the truth. It gives you 12 behaviors that you and your friends and your social network can all agree on. You know, if you have hey, a hey, dude, club. Dude, slow down, slow down. I'm totally with you. Just read. The, just I read those that list. It's not a long list. Can you just read through the list of the 12 behaviors? Sure. Verify. Fact check information to confirm it is true before accepting and sharing it. Balance. Share the whole truth, even if it, some aspects do not support my opinion. Cite. Share my sources so that others can verify my information. Clarify. Distinguish between what my opinion, between my opinion and the facts. Acknowledge. Acknowledge when others share true information, even when we disagree otherwise. Reevaluate. Reevaluate if my information is challenged, retract it if I cannot verify it. Defend. Defend others when they come under attack for sharing true information, even when we disagree otherwise. Align. Align my opinions and my actions with true information. Fix. Ask people to retract information that reliable sources have disproved, even if they are my allies. Educate. Compassionately inform those around me to stop using unreliable sources, even if these sources support my opinion. Defer. Recognize the opinions of experts as more likely to be accurate when the facts are disputed. Celebrate. Celebrate those who retract incorrect statements and updated their beliefs toward the truth. Now imagine if you and all your friends and all your social networks and your secular group, your communities, your political groups, whatever you belong to, your company, your corporation, your workplace, if everyone just agrees to follow these 12 basic behaviors, these 12 behaviors, and that's all. I, I'll, tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, and that is a lot of it, you know, the, it would slow down Facebook a lot because a lot of times people mm -hmm. see something on Facebook and they go like, that's amazing. And they're like, they just share it with all their friends mm -hmm. without ever asking, you know, is that video like, did that actually, you know, who made that? And, yeah. you know, the statistic, you know, you know, did you know? That seven out of ten people that you know drink purple soda die within six years, and they just go like, "Oh my gosh, that's terrible! I need to tell everybody," and they don't verify it before they before they share it. Yeah, well, did you know that in the three months before the twenty sixteen election, the top twenty false news stories outperformed the top twenty news stories on Facebook? <laughs> this is actually true. There was a study that showed that um, the top 20 false news stories in the three months before the election got something like 8 million engagements on Facebook. They were just comments, shares, and likes. And the top 20 true news stories from websites like New York Times and Wall Street Journal, CNN, they had something like 7 million shares. So this is a huge now, problem. Now, Leb, the obvious question somebody's going to ask is, uh, you said there's a study. What study yeah. is that? Where is that study? Uh, Buzz. BuzzFeed News Analysis. So people can check that out. Uh, BuzzFeed News Analysis. And, and uh, do you trust BuzzFeed? In this sense, yeah. Their analysis is quite reputable. And it was cited by a number of other organizations. It was looked through 
and cited by a number of organizations. I'm just, and trying, they give to, I'm, I'm just trying to live up to the pledge, bro. Sure. Yes, and they give the <laughs> good job. They give their data. So, yeah, it's quite reputable. And it's scary that that's what happens. I mean, that's very worrisome that Facebook is causing such spread of misinformation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an amplifier, isn't it? It's just an accelerator. It is, but people – it's not simply an accelerator. It's also a creator because people create – fake news with this in mind. They create fake news knowing that they can amplify and accelerate it on Facebook. So, you know, it's the same way that you say, well, hey, guns don't kill people. Well, they make it much easier to kill people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, guns do kill people. And people kill people with guns. People would kill many less people with knives. And you're saying so. Facebook, like, you know, people say, like, Facebook doesn't lie. It just you know, people who use Facebook lie. And you're like, no, actually, at some point, the, the, it's so powerful that, like, Facebook actually causes lies. Absolutely. In the same way that guns cause deaths. It's you funny, know, you know, my, my sister, um, and she, she, her husband is a, is a big muckety-muck at, at Harvard, and um, she was telling me that Mark Zuckerberg came to Harvard to give the commencement address this year. Mm -hmm. And she said, watching him on the stage... She, she, she said, I really think that guy wants to believe that Facebook is a force for good in the world. Mm -hmm. And she said, I think he's becoming increasingly convinced that, that that's not true. And he's trying to figure out, like, is there a way to fix it? Is there a way mm -hmm. for Facebook to become a good thing? Because its overall impact on our society, probably even he is aware that as as a whole, it's probably having a, a a more negative impact than it is a positive impact. Yeah, and one of the things I mean, one of the things that the pledge helps people do is when we go back to the example of the environmental movement and recycling. Recycling, if you think about it, it's a pretty complex behavior. It requires you to re first remember that you know all paper, all way, all sorts of you know metal things, cardboard plastic should be recycled. Then you need to separate those from your regular trash and have a separate thing of trash uh, for all of these things. Somebody needs to go and pick it up. And then there needs to be an industrial recycling mechanism to address it. So recycling is pretty complex. And people have started and learned how to do it. Now, fact-checking, by comparison, is much less complex there are credible, reputable websites which you know Facebook uses for its fake for its uh, fake news checking program. Things like Snopes, Politifact, uh, and um, AP News Fact Check, and FactCheck.org that Facebook uses. So you can know that it's pretty reputable. Facebook has a big incentive to make sure to use the only the most reputable websites. You just go to that and you fact check something before sharing it. So it's a much easier behavior, but it's comparable to recycling. If people have learned how to recycle, they can learn how to fact check. And, and on your fundamental on, behaviors of the pledge. And on your website, like, you know, like the pledge says fact check. Is mm -hmm. there is there sort of a, a little place that goes like, here's how to fact check? That's right. So uh, it, there's in the second FAQ, what is considered misinformation? One of the things that's considered misinformation is things that go against reputable fact-checking websites. And we have a list of fact-checking websites, which Facebook uses, and we suggest that Facebook, that people use those. 
Snopes, Blitter Fact, ABC News, and FactCheck.org. We also created a FactCheck news uh, search engine, so people can just search easily for FactCheck websites, and that's linked to the word FactCheck right. on Take the Pledge. All right, listen. So it makes it super easy. Listen, I hate to cut this conversation off, but I know that, like, I'm not a behavioral scientist, but I know that conversations that come in shorter on my website have more people listen to them. And and what's weird is this is not a sexy subject, like, you know, how to deal with your own death or, how, you know, like, you know, how to use science to get more sex. Like, this is not an, an, an immediately attractive thing where people are like, hey, a pro-truth pledge, boy, that turns me on. And yet it strikes me that if all of our other problems in our society depend upon us having good conversations about, 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 about solutions, that this conversation is about, you know, how do we protect our ability to have those conversations that we need to have to save our, to save our skins and, and to make our lives better and to make life better for people who are struggling. And so my sort of thing is like, if you care about starving children in Bosnia, if you care about, you know, climate change, if you care about women's reproductive rights, if you care about anything, you need to, you need to care about creating a climate in which decent conversations can be had. And Mm -hmm. so I'm going to say like, I'm just going on the record. I did sign the thing. And boy, if you're a humanized me, kind of person if you're sort of saying like I want to be a more human person like I want to learn to live within the limits of this life and make the most of this life knowing that I'm going to die someday knowing that like I have imperfect knowledge and I you know that 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 I you know my my scope of understanding is limited and our species scope of understanding is limited if you want to sort of be fully human part of being fully human is going like let's create a context where we can do the best we can within the limits that we have and one of those things is to say, like, look, we may not be able to be honest in all situations, but we can we can be more honest in the public sphere. We can be more honest in the public discourse, and this is a step in that direction. So thanks, man. Thanks for Absolutely. doing this. Sure, you're welcome. And this is a covenant, a covenant that anyone who participates in it shares to know and orient toward the truth, being more truthful. And this is crucial for those public conversations. I absolutely agree. Kind of some kind of moralization that says, doggone it, like it's just the right thing to do uh, in terms of like, I don't, I want to please God or I want to, I want to just be a, a man of integrity or a woman of integrity. It's, it's, it's also about just saying like, look, I know which side of the bread my, I, I know which side my bread is buttered on. And it is, it is cr- like, it is in my pure naked self-interest mm-hmm. to pursue truth in the public discourse. Like in the same way that it's in your interest to have clean air and water. <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my barrier against fascism. It's my barrier mm-hmm. against authoritarianism. It's my barrier against abuse uh, power. And so, uh, so thanks, man. This is beautiful. And I really appreciate you coming along and joining this movement part. Thank you, you very much. I'll talk to you later, man. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so that was me and Gleb. I wish you could have seen his face because I know he sounds like maybe a cold scientist, but he has the warmest smile and the friendliest face. And, you know, you don't want to let these accents throw you. I do it all the time. I'm thrown by accidents and uh, have to fight against, you know, my prejudices. 
And when I hear a voice like Klebs, I think like, ah, that guy probably like, he's probably cold and logical, but wouldn't be much fun at a barbecue. And Gleb is a ton of fun. And, uh, and I hope you dug the conversation. I hope you do. If you hung in there that long, you're probably waiting for your Ingersoll quote because I often give those. And I found one that I think is particularly fitting for this conversation and is blessedly short since you've been with me a while today. And here you go. Robert Ingersoll says, intellectual freedom is only the right to be honest. Think about that. Intellectual freedom is only the right to be honest. I love that. I love that. And I love you because you make this conversation that we're having possible and I'm learning so much. And I think I'm getting better. Um, I don't know if I'm getting better as a podcaster. I feel like I'm getting better as a person, better as an encourager of other people. Um, I think I'm going to have this whole thing figured out right before I die. Um, And if that sounds tragic, don't let it because it's really fun to be in the game and it's fun to be in it with you. And I'll see you on the other side of the gap with another podcast. In the meantime, stay wonderful because there is a lot to see once you uh, open your eyes. A lot of good stuff out there. See you later. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.